It's Advent, the second week, so we've got the second candle of our Advent candles lit. And we're in uh, the second uh, of our series, Advent, as foretold, he's here. And last Sunday we were in Mark and... This Sunday we're in Matthew, next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be in Luke, and then on Christmas Sunday, which is actually Christmas Eve, we'll be in the Gospel of John. So read ahead, read all of the Gospel of Luke and uh, John next couple of weeks. Do you good. (laughs) Turn to Matthew, we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I overlooked the fact in the last service that there was at least one person that didn't know what a genealogy was, so I just wanted to take a quick moment and let you know that a genealogy is, as it were, a a charting of the lineage, the generations of birth, The word genealogy comes from a Greek word, genao, or if I say it, genao, do you hear that? Genealogy. That means to beget or to bear or give birth. So the genealogy, the ology part is the study of the births or the generations of births. And that's what we'll be looking at uh, this morning. A lot of times, genealogies are tied together by the word beget or begat, which means to bear or give birth. This doesn't have that, a lot of people try to avoid it because It becomes extremely repetitious. But let me read the first verse of the first chapter of the first gospel in order of the New Testament, Matthew. The book of the genealogy or the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Many of you may have some familiarity with the conglomerate Ancestry, ancestry Ancestry.com, all things having to do with genealogy, family tree, family history, and records. It's the largest for-profit genealogy company in the world. Genealogy is really big business. And in my research this week, delving a little bit into all things Ancestry.com, I found a lot of people that are interested and very involved in genealogy. In fact, on one site, the question was asked, Why do you do genealogy? Which I thought was interesting, you know. Do genealogy. 
Why do you do genealogy? Well, it may surprise you, and there were pages of answers. It may surprise you to learn that people unabashedly use the word obsessed and addicted when talking about their fascination of doing genealogy. But of all the many and somewhat varied reasons people do genealogy, one emerges supreme, and that is a sense of connection and even belonging, belonging to their ancestry, to a mother that was lost, or a mother that died when I was only 13, and I never really got to know her. And by learning more about her life, I feel more connected, like I know her. I know what made her the way she is. So a lot of people are very interested in genealogy. Of course, that's generally only true if it's your genealogy. If it's not your genealogy, then genealogy can be a little bit like torture by boredom. In fact, years ago, I set out to read the Bible left to right, cover to cover. And I got to tell you, I had never taken on such a sizable task on my own without getting paid for it or something like that. But I set out, and I got to tell you, I was, I was sailing along. Um, you know, I hit a little rough water in Genesis, uh, some of the genealogies there. Um, but what I thought was just a squall turned out to be the nastiest genealogical storm imaginable. And that was when I came to Second Chronicles chapter 1. And I thought, oh, I can get through this. Like I said, it's just a little squall. But it, it, it went on to chapter 2. And, okay, come on. Control your breathing. You can do this. And, and then it went on to chapter 3 and chapter 4. I, I mean, basically, I capsized. I drowned. Somewhere in Chronicles, the first nine chapters. Nine chapters of genealogy. I knew it was important, but nine chapters important I didn't expect. Well, how, like I said, if it's your genealogy, it, it's, it's a different thing. Um, on my grandmother's side, on my grandmother's side of the family history, in her genealogy, and her ancestry, there is royalty. Uh, and that royalty goes back several hundred years to France. And uh, my pedigree is hinted in my great-great-aunt's last name. Aunt Jessie 
Sinclair. I always called her Aunt, Aunt Jessie. But Jessie Sinclair, or Saint Clair, you can look up Saint Clair on Wikipedia. I think I, I have some Templar Knights in my history or something like that. But look, I'm not going to wow you with my royalty. Let me just say that my titles and my wealth are so diluted today that a leader of my pedigree is worth less than an already opened but abandoned bottle of Calistoga water. But how, how weird, and I really mean this, how weird if the royals in my ancestry gained greater importance because of me. If, if it was my birth that added meaning to their births, their lives, and their importance in my ancestry. Well, that's not going to happen with me, but that's what happened with Jesus. That's what Matthew tells us in his genealogy in these first 17 verses. And he tells us something more than that, but that is the most important thing you need to appreciate and see here in the first chapter of Matthew and the opening of his gospel and its focus on the advent of Jesus Christ. Christ, not his last name, Jesus the Messiah. He's not in the future. We're not waiting for him. He's not the expected one any longer. He has arrived. He is here. And that's what Matthew's genealogy is making clear to us. And it's emphasized in the very first words, the book of the genealogy. Or you could read it, the book of the generations. Everyone's agreed that Matthew gets this wording from the book of Genesis, which also comes from that Greek word that is the foundation or fount of genealogy, beginning. In Genesis, Chapter 5, chapter 10, you have genealogies that are introduced, if you will, as the record or the book of generations. But what's so interesting is that in Genesis, the book of generations gives a record or a listing of descendants, not ancestors. Matthew, you see, gives us ancestors, not descendants. And as it were, Matthew turns the genealogy on its head. It all matters because of Jesus. In fact, scholar Craig Keener put it this way, Matthew's point is profound. So much is Jesus the focal point in history that his ancestors depend on him for their meaning. In other words, God has sovereignly directed the history of Israel 
and the people that are significant in that history. He's preserved the Davidic line because of his plan to send Jesus. And because of Jesus, we see more than begats, you know? We see the providence of God's plan. We see the providence of God's plan. We see the grace of God and the faithfulness of God in the genealogy or the book of generations of Jesus the Messiah. More than bloodlines, we see because of Jesus not only his family tree but ours. That's the part of the meaning of Advent, of Christmas, that we often miss. We celebrate his birth, but when we celebrate his birth, we who are in Christ ought to be celebrating our births. Because of his birth, we are born too. And we have a new ancestry. We have a place in the lineage of Jesus. We have a place in the master plan of God because of his grace and because of his faithfulness. And so it is in Christ, you belong to the ages. I know that's a big idea, maybe bigger than we can wrap our heads around. But by faith, you become a descendant of Jesus and your line looks back as far as you can see, and it looks into the future beyond what you can see. We belong to the ages because of God's providential plan. And as I said, because of God's grace and because of God's faithfulness. Notice in that very first sentence... And I might add, you may have noticed that I didn't read the genealogy. I have an aversion to genealogies. It is the theology of it that is uh, kind of mastering my passions here. But in that very first or the very opening of the genealogy, we are connected to two great covenants, that of Abraham and David. By the way, you can read about the covenant of God with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17. I would encourage you to do it sometime. And when you read it, notice the attention to the nations. And when we, we don't often use that expression, but that's a comprehensive expression. And in fact, when we use the word or we see the word in the New Testament, Gentiles, that is the very word that is being translated nations. So the, it's the same idea. And when in the covenant that God makes with Abraham, he talks about the nations. Well, to our way of thinking, that's the Gentiles. That's everybody who isn't a part of the covenant that God made with his special people, 
the people that he called out to be identified with him and in many ways to mediate his, his plan for the whole world. To, as it were, translate and communicate that same relationship that he had with Israel, the grace, the love, the election, the law, the privileges. He wanted that to spread to the nations. Israel was, so to speak, to be the church that goes out into the world and touches others for Christ. And so that covenant encompasses the nations, and the covenant with David encompasses the royal rule of his people in perpetuity, that is, forever. That royal reign that is to consummate and be fulfilled in the Messiah. And you find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and uh, about verses 9 to 16, but especially verse 13 says it all very clearly. 13 through 16 in particular. It's God who makes these covenants count because he keeps his promise. It's as simple as that. God made a promise with Abraham. He made a promise with David. And these two distinct works of God's master plan headed by, so to speak, by their names are all about God being a promise keeper. Christmas is a promise kept. It's not just a holiday. Christmas is a promise kept to you not just as the people of God in Jesus Christ, but to the nations, to the world. Christmas is a promise kept to Abraham and David to reach to the ends of the earth and in effect establish his church and accomplish God's providential plan. The world is not governed by chance or fate. And sometimes we may be discouraged, we may succumb to the news, to the heartache. And it's not only all of it being piped into our hearts, through our eyes and through our ears. It may be through the internet, it may be through the television set, it may be through the radio, it may be through your smartphone. It's endless. Sometimes it fails to remind us of the fundamental problem of this broken and blood-stained world, and it is sin. It's in the creation. It's in our creation. And it's uh, just like a genetic disease, it has grown in strength and power. And sometimes it can be so discouraging to us that we can lose heart in these moments. It can reach down into our own family and we can lose hope 
with husband or wife or child or parent, neighbor, co-worker, sister, brother, relative. It kind of gets into our soul and it discourages us. At Christmas, we're looking for something to lift our spirits, but we don't want to miss the most important thing. Christmas is a promise kept from God to the world. And it draws us back to the reality of the redemptive work that he has done in our hearts through Jesus Christ to impress in the most profound way his love and his forgiveness, that life-changing truth of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and the reality of the Holy Spirit being poured out on our lives, making a difference in the way we see the world, understand the complexities and problems of it, and allowing us, because we are rooted in Christ and not just in fate or chance, but we are rooted in the providential work of God. We rise up in the midst of difficulties, and we ourselves reflect the very light that Jesus the Messiah was to be to the nations. A light unto the Gentiles has come. And that light... is something that is a flame in your soul through faith in Jesus Christ. It can be magnified. It can be multiplied by his church and by others, people on our left and our right who love him and serve him too. But don't let anything snuff out the light in you. That flame is kept alive by your faith in this stuff we're talking about. This truth. This genealogy tells us of the advent of Jesus Christ. Anything to distract you at a most important point, isn't it? We can't see God's providence in the moment. We can, in retrospect, with the eyes of his promise, having his grace and his faithfulness for perspective. Friday, our whole family, which is a rather large family, gathered in Modesto, where many of us uh, were raised, married, had children, We had a large gathering of people from the community, from the history of our lives. A part of the service, I was asked by Shelley's mother, whose life we were celebrating in this memorial, Naomi. I was asked by Naomi to, you know, officiate the service, along with another longtime friend and fellow pastor in the Modesto area, Cliff Sexton. And as we were there, it, it, it really kind of overwhelmed me. As I saw Cliff climb the steps 
to read the obituary, to say a few words, and to pray. Because the first time I met Cliff was in 1972. And I was a a new believer in Jesus Christ. And I don't remember how, but some some people who knew me, they just they knew I needed to be grounded in Christ because I was I, really, I, you know, the long hair, the beard, the earring, the shabby clothes, the, the whole hippie thing. I think they figured I was going to wiggle off the hook. And uh, there was this big event in Dallas, Texas called Explo 72. A hundred thousand Christians coming from all over to gather. It was... Uh, it was put on by Campus Crusade for Christ and Bill Bright. And we met in the Cotton Bowl and we overran Dallas with the gospel. And it was on the last night. And by the way, the weather in Dallas can be miserable. And I was miserable that night. But that's not why I stood up. At the close of the whole week-long conference and experience, Bill Bright challenged anyone to stand up if they were going to devote and dedicate their life here on out to Jesus Christ. And by the end of that opportunity, I was standing. Now, that just gives you a picture of the gravity of the experience, but when I got on the bus for this two-day two day drive, I, I knew very few, if anybody, on the bus. And Cliff Sexton, who I mentioned was helping me officiate my mother-in-law's memorial, who was like a second mom to me after my own mother died three weeks after Shelley and I were married. When I got on that bus, I met Cliff. I met... Uh, Another woman sat with her much of the way, Bill Yeager's daughter, Lynn, who later became Cliff's wife. Cliff and I, when we met, neither of us knew we were going into ministry. Neither of us knew that he would marry Lynn or I would marry Shelley. And here we are these many years later, If I used the many years that I've been married, that would put us at about 44 years. 44 years later, Cliff Sexton standing there speaking to us, speaking to my family, my family, a family that I didn't even know, that I belong to, I have history with. My whole life is embedded in a way because of the providence of God and some of the strategic decisions I have made in my life. But I didn't make them alone. And you don't make your decisions either alone. And I want to encourage you to make your decisions with God. And when you make them in Him, you become faithful to them. And when you become faithful to them, you make them work. And you see God work through your faithfulness because He is faithful. And you not only look back at what God has done and you marvel, but you look into the future at what God will do, not just in your life, 
but in the generations that have been shaped and will be shaped by your life and your faith. Jesus Christ is called the faithfulness of God in the New Testament. And because he is faithful, we know faithfulness. We grow in faithfulness. We not only experience it, but we mimic it. And we bring it to bear on people who need faithfulness. They need God in their lives. And you and I represent the best when we are faithful in him. Abraham and David are headings in God's plan, and they represent God's faithfulness. I'm not going to take you to these scriptures, but let me give you them, and I encourage you to read them. And when you come to the word Christ in these passages, do not hear, like, Jesus Christ as if it were his last name. Hear Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And pay attention to the global perspective of the work of Christ. And think about the fulfillment to Abraham and David. The promise keeping in the providence of God. Here's another passage. Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. Where, by the way, and also Romans 4, where Paul says, it is those of faith that are the sons of Abraham. You, now he uses sons because that means you are an heir. You are a legal heir. You are a full-blooded descendant of Abraham. And what he is saying is every one of us here that is a believer in Jesus Christ, living by faith in him, you are a son of Abraham. Notice he goes around Moses, past the law. He goes all the way back to Genesis 15 and 17, where God made a covenant with Abraham for the nations, for the world, for the reach of history, because of the faith of Abraham. And in Jesus Christ, you are implanted in that same lineage. That's what Paul's saying in Galatians chapter 3, in Romans 4. And then review again Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It will do your, whole, your heart good. But let me just impress upon you, when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate not only Jesus' birth, but our birth, our spiritual lineage and family. We are grafted, Paul writes in Romans 11, into the family of God, added to the genealogy of Jesus, who gives meaning to the promises of Abraham and David and gives meaning to your life and mine, just as he did to Abraham and David. We belong to the ages also because of his grace, Jewish people regarded genealogies as important to establish the purity and the lineage of their line. Priestly lineage and genealogies were stored in the temple. They were necessary. Average people like you and me, it's likely also paid attention to our lineage and heritage even though we weren't of the caliber or stature 
of priests. And the point is, is that genealogies were important to people. They took pride in the purity of their Jewish lineage. And yet Matthew here in this genealogy seems to highlight the mixed nature of Jesus' lineage purposely. Because he wants us to see the grace of God at work. And that is a grace that you might say, well, you're kind of engineering that idea as you look at this genealogy. But the proof of it is, again, it's rooted in Jesus Christ. He's the grace of God. Because of his certainty and faithfulness, and guarantee of the grace of God. Now we can see the grace at work all the way through this genealogy, and I can't think of a better verse than verse 6, where Bathsheba is referred to, but not by name. It wasn't that they were ashamed of her name, I don't think. He says, he calls her the wife of Uriah. Do you see it there? Are you looking at the verse? Calls her the wife of Uriah. Do you know who Uriah was? Uriah was a Hittite. He wasn't even of Jewish lineage. But he was such a faithful man. Go back and read 2 Samuel 11. But read it some other day. It's a downer. It really is. It'll take you a week or two to recover from what you see David do in that chapter. He who was a man after God's own heart. The man whose psalms we identify with and read and love. There to cover up his union with Bathsheba, he called back her husband on leave in the hopes that that, if there was a child to be produced, could be pointed to. But Uriah, just like David when he was younger, wouldn't do such a thing when his own troops were on the front lines. He fully identifying with them. All of that comes flooding into our hearts when we read that line, the wife of Uriah. Today we'd say, well, that was, you know, her first husband, or qualify it like that. No qualifications here. What's Matthew doing? He's trying to say, you know what, even in the august line of David, there are crimes that do not thwart the providence of God. And it's not just David who commits this crime. There are victims, not only Uriah. David had him put on the front lines put him in harm's way so that he would be killed to cover up his own sin. He not only wronged Uriah, he wronged Bathsheba. He used his power as king. To wrong her and wrong her marriage and wrong the rest of their lives, as it were, change their lives. And yet here, through Bathsheba's line, see, the wife of Uriah, it all comes flying back. Jewish readers to which Matthew tended to focus his gospel would see all of this. Familiarity, 
But what we see then, not only in Bathsheba, but in verse 3 in Tamar, and in verse 5 with Rahab, and again in verse 5 with Ruth, these are Gentiles. Rahab, back in Joshua, Rahab in Joshua 2 and chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 7, she was a Canaanite. She was an enemy and a prostitute, but she had faith in God. She sided with the, the people of Israel. She aided and helped them, and she was brought in to the family and the lineage and the ancestry of Jesus Christ. The mothers jump out at us. We'd expect Sarah and Rebecca, Leah and Rachel, right? I mean, those are the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those are the mothers that were the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You expect them to be there, but they aren't there. Who's there? People like you and me. That's the grace of God. And that's why you should be there by faith. That's why you are there, and you have to remember you're there, so that when you celebrate Christmas, you're celebrating a promise kept, but you're also celebrating your birth and your future and your ancestry and your lineage, because if you don't get that into your heart, you're not going to be the light, because the light of Jesus Christ isn't going to burn in you when things are rough in your marriage and difficult in your neighborhood and hard at work and you're reading the news or seeing the news or hearing the news and you're, you're overwhelmed by a world out of control and fires that burn, that just burn people's lives out and all of the wrong and bad that's happening. And we just want to lay down sometimes and say, I just want to escape or I want to help or something. But you know what? You're going to help in the best way, in the most selfless way, the most generous way, the, the most life-giving way in the power and strength and the energy and the inheritance and the legacy and the lineage and the birth of Jesus Christ. Because there's no one, no one that will motivate you give you the strength, give you the resources, the hope, the conviction, other than Jesus Christ. So we see here the providence of God, the grace of God, and the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. In both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus turns to his disciples, just like you and me, just as if he were here and he turned to us now. Who are my mother? Who is my mother and my brothers? He said, you are my mother, you are my brothers, you are my sisters if you do the will of God. Jesus, in his faithfulness, unites us as family in the will of God, his providential plan, his grace, and his faithfulness through Jesus Christ. Will you stand?
I'm going to close in prayer. I want to remind you, I will be up front here. So will elders, deacons, their spouses. We invite you to come if you'd like to pray for yourself or to pray for someone else. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. When your truth floods our heart with the perspective and the promise It's really empowering to realize who we are in you. We thank you that at this time, as we celebrate your birth, we celebrate ours too. For in Christ, we belong to you. We belong to the ages. In Jesus' name, we praise you. And all of God's people said, God bless you.